We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And I am just going to dive right in this morning. So as you're turning there, I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. It says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, um, what a privilege it is to worship you together. And as we think about the songs we just sang, the theme that is consistent with all of them, all I have is Christ, God. One day, everything else will pass away. All I have is Christ. I have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God above, not because of anything that I've done in my life, but because the great high priest whose name is love ever lives and pleads for me. And so because of that, God, we will cling to the old rugged cross. Help us to be a Jesus people, God. Help us to be a people whose lives, very lives, are characterized by the fact that we love Jesus. Thank you that Jesus loves us even more than we can imagine. God, so as we turn to your word this morning, James chapter 4, we just pray that you would open our eyes to see the things that you have us to see as we talk about what it means to be fully satisfied in you. Guard my heart, guard my tongue. May you be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but as I think back on my childhood, one of the things that comes to my mind are the common phrases that you would hear over and over again in our household. I think over time, every family kind of develops its own language, so to speak. And, and in our house, you would hear the same thing said over and over and over again. I've talked about some of these things before. Some of the things we heard were very helpful. They're spiritually formative to me. Like my mom would hang things up in our house signs that said, before you speak, ask yourself, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Seeing that sign, you know, I didn't always follow that, but it helped me, and we quoted that all the time, and that certainly shaped me. Or also another sign that would be hung up in our house, what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. That was said over and over and over again in our household. These were good and helpful things for us to hear. There were certainly plenty of other phrases that we said over and over again in our house that would, I would be, I say, less uh, spiritually formative. Things like, uh, whoever smelt it, dealt it, right? <laughs> or the classic follow-up, you can finish with me, whoever denied it, thank you. Some of you were with me. You all knew it. Some of you just were afraid to say it. <laughs> then, of course, there were the phrases that we heard when my brother and I were arguing which happened more than I'd like to admit. Like when we arguing in the backseat of the van and my mom would call out, don't make me come back there. Yep, come on, that, you, you guys, uh, we're not the only family who experienced these things. Or this was a good one. I'd hear, when we were both about to get a spanking, we hear, you're cruising for a bruising. That was a good one. Or the all-time classic, 
just wait until your dad gets home. Ooh, when we knew heard that one, we knew we were in trouble. The truth is, as brothers, we didn't need anyone to teach us how to fight. We were pretty good at figuring that out on our own. And I'm going to guess, like I said, that our house wasn't the only one like that growing up. In fact, I'd be willing to bet a significant amount of money that some of you were even breaking up fights in the car on the way to church this morning. It'd be great if fighting and arguing was something that only kids did and then they eventually grew out of it, but that's not the case, is it? Nope. Maybe you're at a place right now in, in your marriage where you feel like you and your spouse are just constantly just bickering at each other's throats about different things. This is the smallest thing can set off an argument. If that's you, first of all, like we have this great ministry called Grace Marriage. We'd love for you to be a part of that. And honestly, if your marriage is at a point where even you think you need more intervention beyond that, we would love to help you get uh, the help that you need. So please reach out to one of us uh, pastors. While marriage and family can certainly be a fertile ground for conflict, it's far from the only place where we see conflict. We've gone through a master class and quarreling and arguing as a society over the last couple years. It almost feels like there's something inside of each of us that almost predisposes us not to get along with each other. You know what? There is something inside of us that predisposes us not to get along with each other. Conflict has been a part of the human condition ever since the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And afterwards, God tells Eve, your desire will be against your husband, which means you guys are going to struggle to get along. And right after that, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, Cain is jealous of his brother and he kills him. The entire Old Testament, in many ways, is a story of conflict, of struggle, strife. And then the New Testament picks up right where the Old Testament left off. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were constantly grumbling and complaining and fighting with Jesus. Even Jesus' own disciples were found arguing about who was going to be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it might be tempted, tempting to think, well, certainly when Jesus rose from the dead and, and the Holy Spirit came and all, all the believers had the Holy Spirit, certainly the fighting came to a stop. Well, that couldn't be any further from the truth. Even Peter and Paul, two of the greatest missionaries who ever lived, had this major conflict in Antioch and they ended up going their separate ways. And then the early church is just filled with conflict after conflict after conflict. Sometimes I hear people say things like, we just need to get back to the ways that the early church was. And I just like to think, which early church are you thinking about? Pretty sure all the New Testament letters, at least most of them, are in response to some sort of division and conflict that has risen up in one of the early churches. And from what we've seen in James, this letter would be example number one of that. The church is full of favoritism between rich and poor. There are harmful words being said. There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and false teaching and on and on and on and on. The point is this. Arguing and fighting among God's people is nothing new. It is a story as old as time and it continues past James right up until this very day. And the question is, why? Why? You ever wonder that? 
Why are my kids fighting all the time? Why does my marriage feel like we're constantly bickering? Why are so many people just so angry at each other? And that's the question James answers for us this morning. You can almost picture him driving in the front seat and his kids are arguing in the back. And he says in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Why are you fighting all the time? Well, he answers that question. This morning, we're going to see three answers to the question, why are you fighting? We fight because we have sinful desires, we have sinful solutions, and we have sinful motivations. So first, we're going to look at sinful desires. Look at verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he answers his question with a rhetorical question. Why are you fighting? The answer, he says, is because your passions are at war within you. And that word that he uses, which is translated passions in the ESV, is the Greek word hedone, which is where we get our English word for hedonism. So he's talking about these passions are desires for pleasure. It's a desire for pleasure. He says, what causes quarrels? It's the fact that you have these desires for pleasure that are at war within you. Now, the desire for pleasure is certainly not necessarily wrong on its face. We all, as human beings, as people, desire pleasure. And I think we can sometimes get this idea like the best Christians are the most miserable ones. That's not the case at all. We're not called to be miserable in Christ. Pastor John Piper famously coined the phrase Christian hedonism. He took this idea of hedonism, which is only living your life for simply for the pleasure that you can wring out of it. And he flipped it on his head. He talks about Christian hedonism. He says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Maybe you've heard that before. What he means is that God gets the most glory from us when we find the most pleasure in him. That's when God's glorified. Not when his people are miserable, but when his people delight in him. So the problem isn't the desire for pleasure. We should all desire that. The problem is when that desire gets twisted. In our life group on Wednesday, we studied the story of the prodigal son. And as I studied this passage, I realized that this really is a perfect picture of twisted desires. Twisted desires, which then leads to quarreling and an argument. Now, you're probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son. There's a man who has two sons, and the younger son demands that his father give him his inheritance early. Basically, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance, but since you're not dead, I want you to just give me what I'm going to get now. And so the father does it. He gives him his inheritance, and uh, the son goes off, and you know the story, he squanders it all, right, on reckless living, squanders it, there's nothing left, and then what happens, a famine hits, and so now he has no money, and there's no food anywhere, and so he finds himself working for somebody's hog farm, and all he wants is to be able to eat what the hogs have, and he's not even getting that. So he has this moment, right? He kind of comes to his senses, and he's thinking about 
his, probably as he's uh, shoveling uh, who knows what, he's thinking about life in his dad's house. He's thinking about comparing where he's at to where even where his father's servants are at. He says, my father's servants have it so much better than I have now. Maybe I can convince my dad to take me back in and hire me and I'll live as one of his servants. And so he kind of rehearses this speech in his head. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Please take me in to be one of your servants. He rehearses this speech in his head that he's going to say when he sees his father. So what happens? He goes home. The father sees him from afar. He thought he was dead. They're overjoyed. The father runs out to him, and then the son is like, he's starting to say this speech, and the, the text tells us that the father's not even listening to him. He just says, let's get the best robe, let's get the best ring, let's get this guy some shoes, let's kill the fattened calf, and let's have a party, right? And the son realizes it is so much better to be in his father's house. Now, everyone's happy, right? Except for one person. Who? The older brother. Any older brothers in here? Raise your hand if you're an older brother. You can just relate to this on like such a deep level if you're an older brother. What's the older brother say? Why are you throwing him a party? He just squandered the inheritance and now he's back. Meanwhile, I've been staying here the whole time and you haven't given me anything. Now what's the problem? Here's my contention about this story. That the younger brother and the older brother actually had the same problem. The younger brother, before he left and squandered everything, and the older brother, when he was mad about the party being thrown for the younger brother, had the same problem. And that problem was this. Neither one of them understood how good it was to be in the father's house. Neither one of them understood the blessing of living with the father. The father explains to the older brother, son, everything I have is yours, but it's time to celebrate now because your brother has come home. Your brother has come home. You see, both brothers desired to find pleasure outside of the father's house. They just responded to that desire in different ways. The younger brother said, there's nothing for me here. I'm just going to take my money and I'm going to go and I'm going to be happy somewhere else. The older brother said, if I can just grip my teeth and bear it in the father's house, eventually he's going to reward me with something. But it was the same root of the same problem. Do you understand that? So people who are far from God and people who are quote-unquote religious but don't have a relationship with God have the same issue at root. It's just a different way of going about it. The younger son eventually learned this, which is the only true joy, the only true pleasure, the only true satisfaction is found within the father's arms. So why do we fight? Why do we argue? Why do we quarrel with each other? Because we have warring passions. Because we have sinful desires. And it's a heart issue, and it all goes back to how we view God. If you don't feel like God is good enough to satisfy your desires, you're going to look other places for joy. 
And when two people feel like their ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction and happiness are rooted in two opposite things, of course they're going to have conflict with one another. Of course they're going to fight about it. So you can look at any conflict, James says, as sibling fight or marriage fight or a church fight or a COVID fight or whatever it is. And what you're going to see underneath that conflict somewhere is misplaced affections. It's a desire for satisfaction apart from God. Why are we fighting all the time? Because we want to find happiness in places where we're not supposed to find it. We're supposed to find our happiness in God. And if the younger brother and the older brother understood the true pleasure that was found in the father's house, the younger brother wouldn't have gone away and come back. And even if he did, the older brother would have been overjoyed to see the younger brother come back. So let's not seek pleasure outside of God. We need to be a people who seek pleasure in our relationship. With God. God has given us many things to bring joy, but all those things are a foretaste of what it's like to be in the Father's arms. So why are you fighting, James says? It's because you have these sinful desires. Second, he says you have these sinful solutions when you don't get those things. You have sinful solutions to get them. He says you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's not just sinful desires that cause fighting, but it's the sinful solutions that we have to our conflict that are also um, causing us to fight. Now, before we dive into this more, we kind of need to address the elephant in the room in this passage because he says in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you, what? Murder. That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? He says you're not getting your way, so you're murdering each other. Now, I looked up this word in the Greek as well. It's the Greek word phonuo, and do you know what that means? Murder. So it doesn't really help us at all. It's a good translation of that word, murder. You desire, you don't have, so you're killing each other. Now, what do we do with that? There's kind of this rule in Bible translation that you should always use the most common sense of the word unless there's a good reason not to. And so there's some commentators that I read this week who believe that there are people actually murdering each other in the church because they're not getting their way. That their disputes have literally, literally risen to the level of taking one another's lives. That's hard for me to swallow for a couple reasons. First of all, let's say I'm James and I'm writing a letter to the believers because I'm hearing of different problems in the church. What does James do in this letter? He talks about the fact that you're like a man who, you're not doing what God's word says. You're like a man who looks in the mirror and then turns and looks the other way. And he says, you guys are um, hurting one another with your words, with your tongue. That Some of you are teaching things and you shouldn't be teachers. And then he says, and by the way, you're murdering each other. It just seems a little bit backwards, right? Like if I'm James and I'm, I'm writing to this church and if there's the murder that's happening, I'm probably saying, dear church, you need to stop murdering each other. And once you take care of that, I have other things that I, I want to tell you too. So it just seems a little bit extreme. But there's also another question of would James have been familiar with this idea of murdering people in a different sense than actually killing other people? And the answer is Yes, right? What did Jesus say? 
The Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. And so that's what I think James is talking about here. But just because they're not actually killing each other doesn't mean we should take this any less seriously. I've been in 2 Samuel in my Bible reading, and this is exactly what David did, right? He desired Bathsheba. He didn't have her, so he killed so he could have her. And so the question for us is, who are you willing to kill in your heart to get what you want? Who are you hating because they're standing in the way of something that you desire? And when you're frantically seeking satisfaction apart from Christ, and that's what we do all the time. That's the picture of our hearts, right? When we're anxious, when we're angry, when we're in, stuck in sin, it's because we're frantically trying to wring satisfaction and joy out of things that were never meant to give us ultimate satisfaction and joy. And so when you do that, and when you see someone else standing in the way of getting what you want, which is going to bring in your mind ultimate joy and satisfaction, you're going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get past him, right? This goes right along with what we talked about last week, the wisdom that comes from below, that we can make it look like we're successful in this world by the people that we trample over on our way to the top. But that's not wisdom from above. That's not wisdom that reveals itself in the meekness of wisdom, in humble gentleness. It's a sinful solution to a sinful problem. When we desire the wrong, you see how these things go together. When you desire the wrong things, you're going to do the wrong things to get the wrong things. And flip that on its head. When you desire the right things, you're going to do the right things to get the right things. So part of the reason that there's this quarreling and fighting is because of those desires which lead to sinful actions among the brothers and sisters in Christ. And third, what we see is that we're fighting because ultimately we have a sinful heart, a sinful heart, sinful motivations, which come from a sinful heart. It says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend, to spend it on your passions. So there's two elements to a sinful heart that we see here. First of all, James says you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. What's he talking about? What don't they have because they're not asking? Well, in the context of what we've been reading and studying in James, I think he's talking about wisdom here. Remember we said last week in chapter 1, James tells us, if you don't have wisdom, what should you do? Ask God, who gives generously and without reproach. So he says, you don't have this because you don't ask. And secondly, he's just talking about what true wisdom looks like right in the passage before this. So to put it all together, it seems like he's saying, who's wise and understanding among you? You don't have wisdom because you're not asking for it. And what would keep a person from asking for wisdom? Pride, right? The same thing that keeps me from reading those stinking instructions when I'm putting together one of these stupid Christmas presents that has a million pieces. And I'm two hours in and I've got pieces all over the place and gosh darn it, I'm not going to look at the instructions now. It's pride, right? Pride of heart that says, I don't need to ask. I have it figured out on my own. Man, how much do we struggle with that without even knowing it, right? 
Do you struggle with that? How much have you been praying? There's your answer. How many times have you asked God for wisdom in the past week? There's your answer. It's easy to just think I don't have that. But when we really think about it, our lives, our prayer life is going to show how much pride we really have in our hearts. Man, that's convicting to me. Do you have wisdom? You're not going to have it if you don't ask. But then James goes on. He says, you could have a prideful heart that keeps you from wisdom, but you could also have a lustful heart that's keeping you from wisdom. He says, not only do you ask, but when you do ask, you're not getting what you ask for because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, he's saying prayer is not like this panacea, this magic solution to all of your problems if you, that will give you the sinful desires if you ask for them. Like prayer isn't this thing that just says, I have this problem and I need this, and if I just ask, it's just automatically going to come to me. Not if you are asking wrongly, James says, to ask for those sinful desires. So whether in your prideful heart you're refusing to ask God for wisdom or in your lustful heart you're asking God for things that aren't going to satisfy, the problem is the same. God's not going to give you something that's going to drive you further from him, right? What kind of good father would do that? God will give you those things that are good things that will draw you nearer to him. problem at the root of those is a sinful heart. It's sinful motivations, whether it's a motivation to not ask of pride or motivation of a lustful heart where we ask for the wrong things. So as we looked at these verses this morning about quarreling and fighting, I hope that there's kind of one thing that's become clear, which our biggest problem isn't the fighting itself, right? Again, it's so easy to look around and be like, why is everyone fighting? We need to fix that. We need to stop fighting. That's not the biggest problem. Our biggest problem isn't just that we don't get along. If it was, then the solution to that would be just putting some good conflict resolution strategies in place, right? James would have said, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it because you didn't take a deep breath and count to ten before you spoke? It's because you didn't learn how to make a compromise. You didn't look for the win-win-win solution. That's not what James is saying. The conflict isn't the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. You got conflict in somewhere in your life. That conflict itself is not a problem. It's a symptom of a sinful heart. It's the same problem that the younger and the older son had in the parable of the prodigal son. It's the same problem that the man who buried his talent in the ground had. That same problem in the parable of the talents. It's a fundamental lack of belief in the goodness of God. So I'm asking you to look deep into your heart this morning for that. What's causes fights among you? It's that you don't trust that God is good. That he's good. You don't believe that following God is going to lead to your greatest joy and you lead to your greatest satisfaction. Man, I battle this in my heart. And I get on a place where I feel like, man, I'm in a good spot, and then I just get taken off by something else. Do I really believe that God is trustworthy to give my full self to my full heart? That my greatest joy, my greatest satisfaction can only be found in His loving arms alone. 
And when you get to that place, that's when you can die with dignity as somebody who has complete faith and complete trust in their Savior. But man, we want to hedge our bets in so many places. Just of hedging people, aren't we? So why do we lust after sinful things? Because we don't, didn't believe God when he told us that they weren't good. Why do we fight when we don't get those things? Because we don't trust that God wants to pour out every blessing on us. Why don't we pray or why do we pray with the wrong motivations? Because of sinful hearts. So what's the solution? What's the solution? It's the things we've already talked about. Three things. It's the remembering that the pleasures of this world are only meant to point us to God about whom Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God wants you to experience these things in Him. And when the pleasure of this life is the only reason for living, you're going to find yourself miserable and fighting all the time against people who you think are robbing you of that. Second, it's remembering that all people fall into one of two categories. This is important, church. All people fall into one of two categories. They're either a brother and sister in Christ, or they're someone who needs to hear the gospel. I heard someone say one time recently, there's only two kinds of people the Bible tells us to love, our neighbors and our enemies. Can I say that again? There's only two kinds of people the Bible tells us to love, our neighbors and our enemies. That's pretty much everyone, isn't it? doesn't leave a lot of people out so don't commit murder in your heart like jesus said by the way that you hate others the world tells us to hate people that disagree with us people who aren't on our side in our tribe jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you you to remember that and finally pray for wisdom don't be too prideful to ask the Lord for help. And when you pray, don't just pray for things that are just going to satisfy your lusts and desire for pleasure on earth. Pray that God's will would be done because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Sometimes I feel like I only have one sermon to preach over and over and over and over again because I got to hear it over and over and over and over again. Be satisfied in him and him alone. And stop seeking satisfaction other places. James says it's just going to cause quarreling and fighting and murdering. Evil thoughts. Evil things. We need to be a people who are glorifying God. And we can't do that if we aren't finding our deepest and truest satisfaction in him. So find it. Find it in him. Find your pleasure in seeking his face. Find your delight in knowing him, enjoying him, and being loved by him. There's no shortage of lesser glories and lesser pleasures that when we pursue them, we're only going to lead to quarreling and fighting. There's no shortage of those things. Seek him first. Seek his glory and find yourself filled with this indescribable joy and pleasures forevermore that come in knowing him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, may we be a people who seek first the kingdom of heaven. 
May we be a people who seek first joy and satisfaction and delight in you. In delighting in your law. And when you tell us something, trusting that it is for our good. God, we confess that too often we seek after lesser glories, lesser pleasures. And it leads to quarrels and fighting and arguing. Help us to lay those things aside. We've got to crucify them. Put them to death. Which can be a painful thing at times, God. And it's not an easy thing. It doesn't come quickly. It comes from the daily decision to wake up. And to crucify our desires. To spend time with you and your word. To seek wisdom from you in prayer. It's ordinary things, God, but it leads to an extraordinary life with you. So may we be those ordinary people who are anything but ordinary because we are giving ourselves and our lives fully and completely to the God who has at his right hand pleasures forevermore. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.